thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's edition of God, Law, and Liberty. And as always, I'm delighted to have you with me today. And I'm looking forward to today's episode, particularly uh, with how I anticipate ending it. I'm, I'd almost like to begin at the, at the ending because I'm excited about it. So I hope you'll stay tuned through the whole of today's episode. But I want to begin with reminding you that on May 13th, here in Franklin, Tennessee, beginning at 9 a.m. through about noon Central Daylight Time, God, Law, and Liberty, along with the Family Action Council of Tennessee and Alliance for Law and Liberty, are hosting a Chuck Knox Unplugged live event. You may have heard me reference this podcast in past episodes, but I would just say to you, friends, that that the conversation that takes place between David Shannon, known as Chuck Knox, and Jason Farley has probably helped me more in developing a Christian biblical worldview than 60 years of sitting through Sunday morning and Sunday night services. Now, that sounds terrible, I'm sure, but man, uh, I've been challenged to see the world in, in, a, in a way that, well, I've, I've It's never happened at any worldview conferences I've been to before or or any of the worldview books that I've read. And if you would like to learn to think bigger, more broadly, more comprehensively in your worldview and understand the big picture of what's really taking place, then let me encourage you, get a ticket and come. Now we're... We're limiting this to 50 tickets being sold to help underwrite the cost of the event itself. And to be honest, to make sure the people who come really come. They've got an investment in it and they're interested in it. They're not just showing up to see what happens or they decide they'd rather stay home and watch the baseball game on TV or something. But we're also limiting it so that there can be interaction with those who are participating in the podcast and those who are coming. Now, um, I refer to this as a podcast, but it's not going to be podcast live outside. So if you want to hear this, um, be a part of it, to ask questions of the folks on the program, you, you need to be at the event. Now, joining me, in addition to David Shannon, who's known as Chuck Knox and Jason Farley, uh, a pastor, a poet, a writer, um, one of the founders of Lure TV, L-O-O-R dot TV. I encourage you to check them out. It will also be Dr. George Grant here in the Franklin area. So I hope you'll get your ticket. Uh, let me tell you how to get it. Uh, the best way to do is to send an email to us, and we will send you the link to um, the, the website for it. It's too long to give out the website name. So just send an email to info at org. Again, 
info at F-A-C-T-N. And just let us know you want to buy a ticket to the um, Knox Unplugged event. Um, you want the registration for the Knox Unplugged event, and we will get that information to you. So with that introduction, I want to pick up today a little bit with where I left off last week, looking at this question of why alliances in politics seem to be so important to Christians. And before concluding the program, I want to apply that to the Tennessee Three. You may have heard of them on Fox News and Breitbart and all the other news sources, but they're the three members of the Tennessee House of Representatives that disrupted the House floor session by leading the crowds outside the chamber in chants for gun control. But I think it also ties into what we've seen taking place this week with the disruption of the legislative proceedings in Montana over the remarks of a transgendered legislator and his censure by the House Speaker. But before I get into this topic, I, I want to repeat something I said last week so that you hear my heart as I talk about this. I operated most of my 28 years in politics. I got elected to the Tennessee House in 1994, and I've been involved in state politics ever since then. But I operated most of that time under a wrong view and conception of law and how to do politics. And I'll just admit to you, I was deceived, and I think that's the appropriate word, regarding those two things because I did not have a knowledge of the mystery of the Father and the Son mentioned in Colossians 2.2, requisite or sufficient for my station in politics. In other words, what I'm saying is, there's a certain knowledge of that relationship between the Father and the Son that has a particular bearing on the way law and politics should be worked out that I needed to know and I didn't know. I'm not talking about abstract stuff here. I'm talking about a knowledge of the relationship between the Father and the Son and creation and the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the plan of the Father that has very practical implications in law and politics, and I had no clue, and therefore I was deceived, which is in fact the very thing the Apostle Paul says following Colossians 2, 2 and 3. He says, I've said this about the need to grow in the knowledge of the mystery of the Father and the Son so that you will not be deceived. So, I, I just I, I want to let you know, I'm, I'm not being critical of anybody, but I'm trying to understand what I now see and communicate it to those of you who so faithfully listen to this podcast. Now, let's turn to this question of alliances and why they seem to be so important. 
and, and let me put it in a couple of contexts. But the first context I want to put it in is the legislation taking place around the country to, to, to prohibit medical procedures on minors for the sake of um, solving the incongruities between their body and their subjective mental state, or in the word transgender procedures, transgender care. As I've mentioned, I think, in previous podcasts, the Christian community is willing to invite into its tents, so to speak, those in the transgender community who speak against it, but yet have not really repented of their embrace of transgenderism. I mentioned a a phone call national phone call with Christian policy organizations and legislators that was back in, uh, I don't know, November, December, before the legislative session started. And they were welcoming onto the team of those trying to help get the bill passed, a woman who had had procedures to look like a man who now thought um, she was a woman again. And, um, And it wasn't that the person had come to conclude that this was really wrong. It was just wrong for this to take place among minors because um, the decisions could be life-altering and they may or may not really want to, you know, stay in the gender that they transferred to and so on and so forth. So there was no discussion about whether there's any truth about the nature of human beings and the nature of male and female. It was all about medical science and what was effective or not effective and when it might be effective and when it wouldn't be effective and all of that. Okay. Now, why would Christians think that we would need to join forces with those folks? They're free, of course, to support the bill. As, as we've often said in politics, you can support a bill for the reason of your choice. So, for example, a, a legislator may support a bill on transgenderism um, because the governor is, has doesn't like it, and he wants to vote for it to force the governor to have to veto the bill and deal with the political fallout. So while he doesn't give a flip about transgenderism, it, it's I want to put something in front of the governor that will create a political nightmare for him. Well, that's fine. Vote for the bill for that reason. But do we need to form alliances with them? in such a way that we begin to compromise the arguments that we would make based upon our cosmology. And see, that's exactly what's happened. The Christian goes into the legislative chamber and the groups behind them, and they start talking about medical science. As if medical science is all there is to inform our decisions. Now, why does that happen? And why does that become important? I'm going to play an audio clip from a speech that Jeff Schaefer gave as part of the Hale Institute at New St. Andrews College, in which he describes what the Supreme Court has done. And I'm going to I'm going to then explain what Jeff says in case it's hard to grasp and why the court has done what it's done. 
And why that then changes the way Christians make their arguments for laws and public policies. So let's listen to the clip. Yet again, insofar as the court classifies its rulings as merely treating questions of rights, not serving as resolutions of truth, the court approaches and resolves them in terms of a narrow judicial calculus that excludes from view or authority the humanly common forms of reasoning on such matters of consequence. That is, the court, as well as the judiciary more widely, often presents its own idiosyncratic and artificial adjudicative rationality as exhausting the acceptable forms of justification for the nation's laws. While the man on the street of the traditional legislative assembly, when considering the fundamental designs to community life, takes account of such things as human nature, history, morality, shared religious precept, and caution about upending civilizational norms as decisive factors in decision-making, the court, by contrast, elevates its case law and institutional prerogatives to set the exclusive reasons for legal legitimacy. And since the populace and the political branches, regrettably, have ceded to the court the role of the final arbiter of the permissibility of our legislative enactments, the court's veto power can proceed unimpeded in terms of what, at times, are quite peculiar standards of evaluation. Well, let me, let me dissect what Jeff said. He said, what has happened when the court has to adjudicate these various rights claims. Do I have a right to express and define my own identity? The court has created what he called a narrow judicial calculus, or I would say a, a narrow judicial framework. They've created a small world of, of data, of reasons that they will accept to adjudicate rights claims. So if you can picture the beach, the Supreme Court in essence says, well, I know there's a beach out there and there's lots of sand and lots of shells and all kinds of things that are out there, but um, you have to play in the sandbox. Only what's in the sandbox can be considered in deciding what a day at the beach is supposed to mean. I hope that analogy makes sense. Or, put another way, he said that the court believes that what it has said has exhausted the acceptable forms of justifications for the nation's laws. Now, what is the court doing here by creating this narrow calculus or exhausting the acceptable forms of justifications for, for laws or, or giving us exclusive reasons for what will count as legally legitimate. What's happening? Why are they doing that? It's because they have a cosmos without God. They have a law without God. So any talk of human nature, of a given reality, is, quote, out of bounds. That's not in the sandbox that they've insisted we play in. Now, Jeff noted that we don't have to agree to play in that sandbox. But what we've agreed to do is, is to play just within the sandbox. And, and therefore, um, the godless are, 
are are, are, are allies because everything is godless. So we have to become godless too. Now, when, when that's the case, you begin to lose your view that God is the one that actually directs the flow of history. And instead, everything now is based on power and rivalry. Because there's no God who's really moving things according to his predetermined before the foundation of the world ends and purposes. Now, we'll say we believe those things, but we operate as if, no, it's just a power struggle. And so I need to get as many people on my side, even if they're mockers of God and blasphemers of God, so that I can defeat the other side. Now, that's not operating on the basis of faith in the God who spoke the worlds into existence and who sustains all things according to the word of his power, who creates us by the word of his power as people of faith, we act as if there is no such power of his word or, or new creation. And so we have to align ourselves with the horses and chariots of Egypt in order to protect ourselves from Assyria. That's why I suggested last week you read Isaiah 30 and 31. And, and that, my friends, I, I don't see how that is God-honoring and God-glorifying to accept a godless legal framework and then say the only purpose for which we exist is to pass a law to prohibit a bad thing when we have no interest in restoring the good of what it means to be human, the loss of which has resulted in the evil we now have to prohibit. So if we don't work towards restoring a conception of law that's rooted in a biblical cosmology, which conception of law is the common law, then we're just going to have to keep passing more pragmatic bills grounded in, in allies to stop things and we can't stop enough things to actually create the good. I mean, the, the word of God is very clear. Law doesn't make us good. And in fact, when you argue that we should pass this transgender law on the basis of what medical science says today, then when medical science improves, and it will improve, because there are states that you know, are going to support all this so the scientists will keep going and the drug companies will keep going. Well, eventually they'll say, well, the science has changed. And then we will have no argument left because we didn't make an argument in the first place about what it means to be human because we were playing in their sandbox. And it was all about power. And when it's all about power, and we lose our faith in God to order things to his ends, well, we're in trouble. And I think we need to repent of the view of law and politics that we hold today. So see, that's what's going on at the Tennessee Capitol. That's what's going on in Montana. It's a power game. And, and I'm going to stir up my side to overwhelm your side.
Now, Tennessee is supposed to have a special session here dealing with guns uh, arising out of this shooting uh, at the Covenant School by this transgendered woman. And um, I can I can anticipate right now you're going to have all the forces behind the quote Tennessee three in the transgender community there, the transgender community that's disrupting the the House proceedings in in Montana. They're all going to be out there in force, and then the NRA is going to be all out there in force, and it's just going to be nasty because that's what rivalry is, and we don't realize that God has in Jesus Christ, brought peace to the cosmos if Christians will understand the nature of what's going on around them and choose to be peacemakers by taking the conversation beyond rivalry. Are are you advocating we sit here and we do nothing? Absolutely not. And in fact, let me encourage you, if you think that might be what I'm saying, Read the commentary that I've posted on our website. It should be up there no later than April the 28th, Friday, April the 28th. Read it because it addresses that question because I was asked that question. So do Christians just do nothing about law in the interim and just preach the gospel and hope everybody gets saved and, and then we'll all be fine? Absolutely not. But what we need to do is to be willing to speak the truth and not compromise the truth because the Supreme Court and the godless folks in charge of our institutions have said, don't bring in arguments about truth and reality and the nature of things. I don't want to hear that. Well, they need to hear that. There's a way to do it. There's a way to do it without having to spout off Bible verses all the time, and that's the common law. And and I want to do another series at some point here on the common law. But there are ways to do that, to restore a true biblical cosmology, because the common law was rooted in a biblical cosmology. But we won't do it, because we think that that, that kind of argument will lose, and winning is more important and speaking the truth about the nature of reality and the nature of what it means to be human. And so, what do we do? If, if, if we use that kind of argument, David, that kind of common law argument, well, we're liable to lose and we're not going to have friends join with us. Well, see, right there, we've accepted the godless framework that we've been offered. And that's what Jeff Schaefer was saying at the end of his comment, his clip. We've, we've agreed to accept that limitation, and we don't have to, but we have. But, but look, when we think that passing the bill is the most important thing, then we've, we've lost our focus, I believe. And, and that's what I want to try to restore in these closing minutes of today's podcast. And I want to do it by looking at scripture because scripture is tested it's true and the word of god will endure forever so let's put our faith and our confidence in the word of god and here's where i want us to turn it's in proverbs chapter 16 beginning in verse 3 
and, and let me explain how I think these verses that I'm going to read pertain to this question of what do we do, and if we don't form these alliances, the wicked will win and will lose. The writer says this, Commit thy works unto the Lord. And notice what he next says, And thy thoughts shall be established. He doesn't mention necessarily the work itself. That, okay, I'm Lord, I, I, I commit this transgender bill to you, so I'm going to make alliances with the with Egypt because they have horses and chariots and together, man, we're going to really be able to withstand Assyria. And so, Lord, I'm dedicating this to you. He didn't say that the work would stand. He said the thoughts shall be established. Now, here's what I believe is going on there. Our works flow from our thoughts. And when our thoughts say, God, I want to restore a right cosmological foundation to law. I want, I want to get us out of the sandbox and back on the glorious, beautiful beach. I want to restore the notion that human beings are incredible creations of God and that we are made in the image of God and we've been created male and female that we might procreate and spread the, the revelation of the glory of God around the earth through through the millions of persons that through our procreative acts are created. That's what I want to do, oh God. So I'm going to offer legislation on transgenderism in a way that would begin to restore that and not just rest on what some scientist or medical researcher happens to be saying today. And God says that thought will be established because all things are for my glory and I'll establish that thought. But Lord, I, I want you to establish that work. And he says in the next verse, look, the Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. God establishes a day of evil for reasons. I won't get into those today. But he says, look, I created the wicked. If they prevail over your particular work and your particular bill loses because you've made an argument rooted in the common law trying to restore this understanding of what it means to be human, that's okay. I made those wicked for that day. And then he goes on in verse 5 and says this. This is our assurance. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Now, I would submit to you, those who are an abomination to the Lord are the wicked. The wicked are those who are proud in their hearts. They think they can be God and play God, and that's exactly what's going on right now with our Supreme Court and with the transgender community. I can be God. I can make myself in whatever image I choose. And he continues and says... Though hand join in hand, he shall not go unpunished. In other words, they may make these alliances, they may join hand to hand, and they may seem to prevail over the work of your hand today, but they will not go unpunished. And your thoughts of trying to restore the truth will be established. And then in verse 6, 
He gives us a clue about how to go about it. By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. See, we're not offering any truth. We're offering what medical scientists say seems to relieve psychological tensions and and doesn't create all kinds of physical problems and hang-ups because parts of our bodies no longer really work and function well and so on and so forth. It's mercy and truth that purge iniquity. Is that not what the Christian would want to be doing? Stopping something on the grounds that there's no truth about anything other than what science says, well, that's not very helpful. And by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. See, we have no fear of the Lord anymore. And we're not even willing to make a legal argument that rests upon the presupposition that there is a Lord and there is a God who has made the cosmos to work in certain ways. And as I said, we don't have to go around spouting Bible verses. We've got the common law as a tool that's available to us, and the court has has begged us to use it in the last year, but we won't because we're so stuck in the framework that all law comes from what men made and the way the world works is through rivalry and power, and so I must have alliances. And David, your arguments don't bring about alliances, and then I'll lose. And then that poor child will have some surgery and that child's life will be ruined forever. Do you not think God knows that? Have we thought about the fact that when when the Jews came to Jesus and said, hey, you know, what about those people the Tower of Siloam fell on? His response wasn't, oh, that was terrible, and I don't know what God was doing. He said, well, all of y'all are going to perish if you don't repent. See, we're, I think we're actually trying to play God. He says, God, God does not raise up the wicked. God does not allow the wicked to do certain things to accomplish his purposes because God's not in control of his universe. When he actually used the wicked to destroy the wicked on Golgotha, We need to get back to believing in that God and believing that God is able to channel the hearts of kings wherever he pleases, and he may, in the moment, not please to channel them in my way. But I'm going to proceed for the honor and the glory of God with an advocacy that's consistent with the way God has said he's ordered his cosmos and not for the sake of alliances, just to stop a bad. We need to begin to restore the good, and you'll never restore the good by simply, pragmatically, trying to stop the bad. Because there'll just be more bad and more bad and more bad until the good is restored. Until iniquity is purged. And the fear of the Lord causes us to depart from evil. Well, thank you for joining me for today's episode. I look forward to having you back again next week on the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, 
please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.